All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if I've not met you yet, my name is David Snelling. Uh, I'm one of the teachers here at the Hub City Church. I teach your kids over there, and I have the opportunity every once in a while to bring uh, the Word of God to us as a congregation Sunday morning. Um, to be honest, I love teaching kids, but this is beyond far my favorite place to be. Uh, a couple announcements before we get into our sermon. Number one, if you were here yesterday for the workday, Thank you. I was not able to be here. I was working, but when I pulled in this morning, there was so much work that was done, and it was so evident, and it looks awesome outside. So thank you all who came. Also, a couple weeks, Fall Fun Fest, be there, chilly, coolness, sounds good. That's the end of my announcements. I've got nothing left for you. Uh, but we are finding ourselves this morning uh, at the end, towards the end of the book of Ephesians in our study written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, the first half of this book has been doctrinal, right, and related to our salvation in Christ and what that looks like, uh, the gift that we have been given. And the second half of the book has lent itself to much more of a, a practical living out our new birth in Christ. We've looked at how we're supposed to talk to each other, right, our speech, how we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul even goes into our relationships between husband and wife, between uh, boss and subordinate, parents and children. So Paul spends a lot of time in this book about how we're supposed to live in light of the gospel. Uh, but this final section of chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, continues in that practical way, but it shifts gears a little bit. The Apostle Paul is ending his letter to the church of Ephesus with a call, and that is a call to war. See, most wars have sides, right? Obvious. Enemy or enemies, allies, and there is even a hierarchy of soldiers, sergeants, all the way to generals. There's risks involved and usually very great and heavy risks. See, one of the ways that we can describe the Christian life is one at war with our sin, which, which the Bible calls our flesh, and with the world and our vastly different ideals. And of course, our enemy, Satan. See, last week, Pastor Tad taught in verses 10 through 13 of this chapter. He introduced us to our enemy in, in kind of a biblical overview of him. He controls an army of demons, we know this, and he sits at the top of this hierarchy of the evil force that wages war against our God and his image bearers, you and I. Pastor Tad showed us how he schemes around tempting us and accusing us. And today, this morning, we're going to get into what God has given us for our defense and how exactly we are called to fight this war. So we're going to read our text, and we're going to start in verse 10 uh, to kind of get the foundational picture of our text, but then we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 20. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, 
and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I admit, God, I need you now. God, you have to do the work, Lord. You are the faithful one who does the work. God, I pray that in in this morning, the word of God will go forth, that it will not return void, as is your promise. God, that I would decrease, that you would increase, and we as a, a congregation, as a body of believers, would come to realize and understand, God, the defense that you give us against this, this enemy. Father, that you would encourage us by your Holy Spirit to go to war. God, we rely on you. We trust in you. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we'll right out the gate... I want to give the main point or idea of the sermon this morning. That way, as as we go through, we can use it as a reminder and almost like a compass uh, uh, of these texts. So here it is. First point in your notes. Uh, The reality of spiritual war is unavoidable in the Christian life. And Jesus' call to his people is clear. Stand firm. That's Jesus' command to us is to stand firm. Now, if I could rehash last week's sermon, I would. Genuinely, I really would. But that would take far too long. And y'all want to go to lunch at some point. So if you missed it, go listen to it. Go listen to it. It's available on the the YouTube and all of that jazz. Go listen to it. Uh, Because it would be a benefit to you. It was a benefit to me. But it's clear in our text, we are in the midst of a spiritual War, spiritual warfare with the unseen realm, and I have no intent on being a casualty, neither should you. God calls his people to stand firm, to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. See, the first note we should be regarding in our, in our verse of text, specifically verse 13, is what does Paul mean by the evil day that he mentions? And this is important, isn't it? See, think about it. If the evil day is just one day or just one moment that you have to fight, that, that changes the way that we train, doesn't it? If spiritual warfare was a boxing match, then you would have six months to prepare. You would train diligently for six months for that one moment when devil would come and accuse and tempt you. But but that's not what we're living in. You see, a war is a stretched out period of time of battle. And it lasts until one side either concedes defeat or is defeated themselves. Friends, war and this evil day is speaking 
of the time in which we are awaiting Jesus' inevitable second return. See, Paul uses the same language in, in, in the previous chapter, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, talking about Christian conduct. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We are in the evil days. Some days will be worse. And if we're honest, some days we may even go without thinking about this war. You see, but the Bible describes our faith as a race, not a sprint. And it's the same with this war. So we should also take note of our passages, how uh, Paul uses almost a building argument, doesn't he? He uses just in verse 13 and 14, two therefores, which we know builds upon the previous idea. And the repetition that Paul uses of the command of take up. You see, anytime that we see something in Scripture, I'm sure most pastors say this, is, is if it's repeated twice in the same passage, to, to take notice of that, right? To take heed to the Word of God. How about seven times? Paul uses the words take up or a variation of that command seven times from verses 10 through 20. You see, this denotes the Christian's responsibility to take up the armor of God. This call is to be taken serious by us. God is not calling us to a passive Christianity or us to be a bystander. But as warriors following their general, Jesus Christ, who has already secured the victory, we are to arm ourselves accordingly. Puritan author William Gurnall says this, Briefly, what is implied in the command to put on? We know it is more than, than a putting on by conversation. There is little value in saying that I have faith or I have hope or I have charity. If you are not at that moment believing or trusting or loving, it is one thing to have armor in the house and another thing to have it buckled on, to have grace in principle and grace in action. Christian, regardless of how old you are spiritually or physically for that matter, this armor is for you. There is no spiritual secret bat cave that we go to to arm up. Doesn't exist, okay? There is no deep sense of like monkhood Christian piousness that you have to attain. See, at the moment of new birth, God provides us with his armor. At the moment of new birth. So let's get into the practical side of this. Let's get into what Gurnall calls Grace and action, the whole armor of God. My goal right now that the foundation has been laid for this conversation uh, is to take each piece of the armor and to break it down with, with a practical truth of what it is or, or what it does, and then to follow it with how we equip it day to day, okay? So we'll start in verse uh, 14 with the belt of truth, the first piece of armor that Paul lists. And I, and I think there may be a temptation here for us as, as Christians, really, to leave this armor aside by just saying, well, Jesus, right? The gospel, the Bible. And that's true. But we shouldn't just move on from it. We can't take truth for granted. And just yesterday, I, I got off work and was driving home, and, 
And I listened to a man claiming to be a pastor, and, and I mean this genuinely. He claimed to be a pastor, to be pastoring God's people. And he told the congregation this, and it wasn't a small church by any means. It was a much larger church than our own even, that the books of the Bible are like imperfect circles that were written by man and that all come together as man's way of explaining their experience with the divine. He also said that the Bible refutes itself for the sake of moral inclusivity, whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. Said that the Bible refutes itself. This church claims Christianity and have a hold on truth. This church claims Christ, but that, what was said, is complete blasphemy and can't be further away from the truth. So we must not take truth for granted as God's people, right? As Christians seeking to be well-armed and ready for battle, this belt, this, this key piece of armor is, is, is a part of the main setup of the entire, entire armor itself, right? Historically speaking, Paul was in prison during the time of this writing. And as history suggests, he was in Rome. So the visual example that, that Paul most likely had in front of him was the description of the Roman armor, so let's look at the belt of the Roman armor. It wasn't just to keep pants up, right? Actually, what it was, it was a, a status symbol of the soldier's profession. Soldiers wore it both in combat and out of combat, and it would have been clear to the entire, to the entire civilization this was a soldier for the Roman army. And see, not only was it an outward symbol of physical or, or uh, authority, it was also worn in the time of battle. And like the movie show, it, it carried the sword, right? That is true. But it also would have attached to the breastplate itself. See, if you've ever worn a, a vest here, you know what I'm talking about. When you sit down with that vest, it goes straight up into your chin, right? It would have attached to the armor, this belt, and it would have kept the breastplate from choking the Christian. It would have held the armor in place. And this is a perfect analogy for truth, because we as Christians have come to know truth. That's, that's a part of what it means to be a Christian. And we've taken this truth and we tie it around our waist as a symbol of who we are. We are Christ's and it secures this armor in place because devoid of truth, what armor do we have? So truth here that Paul is using is, is not referencing a personal experience or a feeling Truth here is referencing the objective, revealed word of God. Truth in its purest definition. And when a lost sinner comes to the Father and is restored, our lives look completely different. Because we were given the belt of truth. So how does that relate to our enemy? How does that relate to our battle? I'm glad you asked. The belt is our protection from both Satan's whispering accusations and his roaring deceptions and his roaring deceptions. Think about how Satan operates, church. Uh, Pastor Tad went through the schemes last week, right? Satan will seek to accuse you, causing you to doubt your own salvation or attempt to distort God's character and his promises. And he'll try to deceive you as he deceived 
Eve, making sin look like the right thing. But that doesn't hold the truth, does it? That doesn't hold to the revealed word of God. And when those accusations come, and when those roaring deceptions come, and they will come, they'll crowd your heart and your mind, and you will be tempted to fall into despair or what is known as spiritual depression, okay, and fear, we have the belt of truth that will support us. It says that Christ has already won. You see, when Satan should come, the truth of the gospel in all of its glory is our protection. For Satan cannot defeat it. Satan cannot kill it. And though he would try to sway us off of truth, and he will, we equip this piece of the armor. And we equip it by continually to seek and follow God's will through God's word. How can we know truth if we don't remind ourselves of the truth? If we're not seeking it. Friends, we never outgrow the gospel. Never. There is never a moment in our earthly lives that we do not need God's word. It reminds us of the promises of God. It reminds us of the work of Jesus on the cross. And we rest our heads at night on that truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them. This is the words of Jesus. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. All right, let's go on to the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to go through these quick and see every soldier knows that the area of the chest is the largest target for an enemy. See, whether it's by sword, by arrow, or by bullet, there are too many organs there, and there's too many things that can go wrong if we have an injury, okay, in that area. And so it's fitting that the Lord chose the breastplate as the armor that recognize or this symbolizes righteousness you see armor that protects our main organs the lungs and the heart it's the last resort of protection isn't it it's no different here and we'll talk about the shield of faith later that we're called to pick up but a soldier doesn't run out to war only carrying his shield does he not one that wants to live anyway because that armor is what will save him when an enemy slips in an unseen knife or a well-placed sword stroke. When fatigue sets in and that soldier's shield begins to drop just a little too far. Because if we get honest here, friends, we still are sinners, aren't we? Redeemed if you're a Christian, but still a sinner. See, we have the flesh And our flesh wants to sin. It wants to sin against God. And that battle is tiring. Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And Satan wants to tempt us to that sin, doesn't he? But, But the righteousness that we proclaim and the righteousness that we wear as Christians as a means of our protection, is not our own righteousness. It is the perfect righteousness of Christ. You see, the righteousness of Christ is our greatest strength and our greatest defense. In the hymn, Rock of Ages, which was written in the mid to late 1700s, its lyrics go like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, 
simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages cleft to me, let me hide myself in thee. We hide in the ultimate work of Jesus Christ. But don't forget, this is a call to war. Okay, the righteousness of Christ is our greatest defense against the enemy, against his accusations, because it is not our work that justified us to begin with, is it? And therefore, the enemy can't touch it, church. The enemy can't destroy it. But it's also our greatest strength. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or in 1 Peter 13 through 16, Therefore, Peter says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, friends, as we stand in the righteousness of Jesus, we are strengthened to put to death who we used to be. We are dead to sin, alive to God, and we have set our hope on the grace that will be revealed. But until then, we fight by the righteousness and the strength of Christ. And we trust that in this armor, we are protected until the very end. And that's the way that we equip it. We rely on and trust in Jesus Christ as the means of our salvation until the very end. That's what it means to have the breastplate of righteousness. To the shoes of readiness now. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Friends, the first question we might ask when coming to this part of our text is readiness for what? Readiness for what? And, and what is that, that gospel of peace? It, it is the Sunday school answer, right? John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those are the words of our Savior. So we have, we have peace in God through victory of Christ, but this peace brings a readiness within us. In that readiness is to tell other people about Christ. It's to tell other people about Jesus. And this might seem like an odd place for Paul to kind of put in that evangelism reminder. But that, that's not what this is. Because we cannot forget as soldiers of Christ that we have a mission here. Our command from our general in this war is to take the truth of the gospel that captivated us that saved us, that changed us, and to tell other people about the one who did it all. Amen. The next question we would ask is, well, what does that have to do with spiritual war? Well, it keeps us focused on our goal to reach the lost, and it guards against apathy. 
You see, every good leader knows that too much downtime isn't a good thing, right? Now, when there's a mission, not when there's a task at hand that needs to be complete, too much downtime leads people going off and doing their own thing. It leads, from a militaristic perspective, it leads an opening for an ambush. Because if the soldiers are not on guard, then the enemy will take advantage of it. And when we are focused on our goal of reaching the lost, our hearts and our minds are set on the love of God. And it keeps us rooted in the one who has given us this mission. Because our hearts, still affected by the fall as we talk about, can fall into what I would call lax Christianity or an apathetic heart. Scripture warns about this, okay, to keep an eye on our own hearts. And a Christian who isn't on the battlefield for the lost, number one, we're not being obedient to God. Number two, Satan relishes in it. Friends, uh, we should ask what stops us individually from seeking to tell others about Jesus. You see, are are we caught up in the, the building of friendships? And we say that it's missional, but... But in reality, we're just afraid to say anything? Or are we totally against talking to those outside the church as if we have this air of self-righteousness? Is it fear of rejection? Or maybe you just genuinely don't know how to have the conversation. When it came to Christ, when you came to know Christ, someone was faithful enough to tell you about him. Maybe it wasn't perfect. Maybe the way they went about it isn't perfect. I know the way that I've gone about that conversation hasn't always been perfect, okay? But they told you. So we need to stay focused on the goal and on the mission and let the love of Christ that saved you be what breaks you of fear in regards to mission and as shoes for our feet. Here's how we equip this armor. We be ready to seek and tell the lost without fear of social rejection or even physical persecution. The gospel of peace. It won't be easy. It will be hard. And there are some who will threaten us physically. This is why it's called the gospel of peace. You see, Paul could have said the gospel of of victory, of war, Right, that we're saved and so we live in this, this battle. No, he uses the gospel of peace because we are at peace with God. And no matter what the world does to us, it cannot take our salvation within him. Let's think on that. The next piece of armor, the shield of faith. In all circumstances. This is how Paul begins verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Notice here that it does not say if the flaming darts come, you can extinguish them. Spiritual warfare involves all of us. And these words sound very familiar to the book of James, doesn't it? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. When you meet trials, not if you meet trials. James also says various kinds, and so I would count spiritual warfare in that definition, right? 
Friends, God does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. He does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. As Tad said last week, the devil made me do it. That's not a thing, okay? He's going to tempt you. The enemy will tempt you. But your God in heaven protects you and does not allow him, the enemy, to tempt you beyond your ability to resist. And the shield of faith is what we raise in this war when Satan would have his go at us. But notice what the shield is. The shield of faith. There is a balance within this passage of scripture because we see both the human responsibility to take up But as we read, we begin to realize the armor is God's. It is not our strength that that manifests it, that put it on. It's God's. So it's trusting in God. It's having faith. And even I would say it's trusting in God's faithfulness. Here's our truth about the shield of faith. Uh, The reality that regardless of what the enemy may say to us, It is our faith in whom it rests on that we stand. Satan is a liar. Satan is a deceiver. He is a tempter. He's also an accuser. Revelation 12.10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of, of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, this is the part of the fight, if we're being honest, that can get pretty rough. Spiritual warfare isn't a walk in park. It it will be difficult, and some days it'll hurt. But the accuser, right, who wants to accuse us before our God will be thrown down at the final day. And the shield that we carry to defend ourselves against him, right, is the shield of faith that God will do it. And when he wants to accuse us and when he wants to try to lead us into that depression or where we're questioning our salvation, we remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. God is the one. I didn't know Josh was going to say this, read from Corinthians. But the, but the words that Josh emphasized in that talk was, but God. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, but God. So we were in sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. My faith in Christ cannot be broken. Your faith in Christ cannot be broken because it's not our strength by which we hold on to Christ. You're not holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. And it's that strength. Charles Spurgeon says this, my hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. Here's how we equipped our shield. Know and be ready to defend with the promises of God. Know and be ready to defend with the promises of God when those temptations and accusations come. Be ready with God's word.
The helmet of salvation. Let's move on. Our passage says, and take the helmet of salvation. For this piece of armor, right? Here's the truth that we need to get out right out the gate. It's the knowledge that we are already have been saved, that we already have been saved, and the knowledge that Christ will save us in the end. Right? This is the helmet of salvation, but I wonder how many of us, when we think about salvation, we don't really think about it this way, do we? Uh, we think about the moment in time that we became a Christian, and, and that's true, but Scripture, the Bible, talks about salvation both in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense. The already, not yet. That God is saving us. He did save us in that moment that we believed, that we repented, Right, that we confessed in our with our mouth and believed in our hearts, we became a Christian. In that moment, Christian, you were saved. Christ is also saving us today, is saving us. And in the future tense, when Christ returns, he will save us in the last. Just think of uh, with me for a minute how our 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 lives would look differently if we thought about our salvation like this. When we wake up and think, My God is saving me. And how that would strengthen us for battle. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, for a believer who is hoping in what God will do because of what God has already done, we become emboldened to do what needs to be done today. We put on our helmet, assured of our salvation, our ongoing salvation, and that Christ will complete it at the day. See, hope allows us in the midst of battle to wait for the Lord, to be patient. And any glory that the earth, might, the earth might have and that Satan might tempt us with, as he did Jesus, is nothing compared to the glory that we hope in at the final days with Christ. Yeah. You know, I, I've been really excited to preach this text, if you couldn't tell, okay? Because I am convinced of how important these verses are for our lives. Jesus came to seek out the lost and to heal the sick. This hope of salvation is for those who, kneel, who know that they need to be saved. For those who see their sin, not as some moral fault or just a bad thing, but as a case of cosmic treason. And it's for this reason that Christ Jesus went to the cross. He carried it, beaten and whipped, and he hung there. And his final words were, in the original language, tetelestai, or It is finished. You see, we equip this piece of armor by boasting in the cross and being confident that Christ is faithful. Boasting in the cross is is not like boasting in the murder of Jesus or in the implementation of torture that was used, but it's boasting in the love of God. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We boast in the work of Christ. We boast in his love for us. And and we can be assured, as Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
that is Jesus, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. So put on the helmet, Christian. And after that, what Paul tells us to do, for all the guys in here, we're excited by this one, we draw our swords. This is the only weapon that God gives us, and it's the only weapon that we need. See, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, for us reading these verses, we should naturally ask ourselves, what is my relationship with the word of God? What is my relationship with the word of God? Do I read it? Am I in it? Am I studying it? See, if you look back at the bulletins, sorry about how small the font is. I have a lot of notes. Um, A lot of what we've been talking about is the faithfulness of God. Is the faithfulness of God that he will fulfill his promises. You see, to seek and know God's will, that's what we do. And the way that we do that is God's word. Faith comes from the word of Christ, as Romans says. In this word, God has shown us creation, redemptive history. He has shown us that God wants a people who are marked not by religious hypocrisy, like the Pharisees, but marked by faith. How can we know any of this if we're not in what God has already revealed to us? These words don't just reveal the truth about God, it also reveals the truth about us in light of God. Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the spirit and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Church, we need to be in the word. Like there's, There's no question where we need to be. We need to be in the word, not to check off a religious box, but to seek the face of our God, to know his truth, to spend time with our Savior, and to be corrected and convicted for our good and for our growth. God calls us to study the word of God, that we may be found approved by him, rightly handling the truths within the pages. You see, a child of God is marked because we seek to obey God, not through moral obligation, but because of our love for him. See, the sword of the Spirit is the weapon for both internal sin and external schemes. That was the internal part of our sin. Now let's get to the external schemes. our, Our enemy prowls around like a lion, You see, Pastor Tad referenced this scripture last week. He prowls around like a lion, seeking and ready to devour us. So we must be ready. We must not give him an opening uh, to an unfought sin in our lives. We must wield this sword against him. You see, God calls us to fight by his word. It is true that Satan probably, I'm going to say he does, have more Bible Verses memorized than you than you and I do, right? He's going to have more theological knowledge, probably because he was there, right? And I, I would guess that this is most certainly true, but it's not true that because of that fact, we don't fight with the word of God. We don't look outside of the word of God to find out how we fight against the enemy. And don't forget, our enemy can appear as an angel of light. 
And as Tad labored on last week, he takes what God has said and he twists it. Scheme that is old. So it's not a matter of, uh, of do we have enough Bible verses memorized to fight? And we should memorize Bible verses. Don't get me wrong. That equips us, right? But it is a matter of am I standing firm in what God has said and what I know about God? You see, we should be seeking to further our knowledge and further our memorization. But it could be as simple as this, church, because if you've been in warfare, you know sometimes in the moment you can't remember it. Like, man, that, that verse is there on the tip of my head, but I can't, I can't quote it word for word, right? And it can look as simple as this. When Satan should tempt you uh, either to sin or to accuse you of your sin, our response may be as simple as this. And you, Satan, will be cast in the fiery pits. I know where you're going, and I know where I'm going, but you've already lost. It might be as simple as that. When the thought comes that you didn't do enough to earn God's love, you remember that that's true. That that's true. And yet Christ died for me. And yet Christ died for you. Jesus is the firm foundation that you are not saved by your works, but of grace through faith. And we equip this sword uh, by opening ourselves to the word of God for our growth and internalize it for our defense. You probably see how the armor of God, it, it, it really flows into each other, right? You got to have the belt of truth to fight with truth. And this is the whole armor of God, what Paul describes. And as soldiers, we are called to arm ourselves accordingly. We are called to follow our general. Though we have the responsibility to take it up ourselves, and the call by our general is to stand firm, it's the strength of the Lord that we stand. That's what verse 10 says of our passage. In the strength of God. You see, Christian, if you want to fight well, you must abide in Christ as the source of our strength and the assurance of our victory. See, this is, this is why we say here at the Hub City Church, we, we believe the gospel, we abide in Christ, and we obey the word of God. You see, Paul ends this text talking about prayer. That was a shift, wasn't it? Take up the armor of God. Fight. Don't forget to pray. And I don't have a lot of time to get into prayer at its fullest extent, really the extent it deserves. But I will say this, God has, God has chosen to follow the armor with telling us to pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication. Friends, if we don't pray, we won't live. If we don't pray, we won't live. I mean, this is a reality. Prayer is our desperate and humble acknowledgement that we need God. We need to talk to our Savior, our King. It is a discipline, okay? It's a discipline that we need to be growing. And that's not legalistic to say that. It's not legalistic to say, first thing in the morning, I'm going to devote 10 minutes to prayer, five minutes to prayer, whatever, on my drive to work, I'm going to pray. On my drive home, I'm going to pray. That's not pharisaical. That's not legalistic. That is planning a time to speak to our Savior 
our God, to make our desires known to him, which is commanded in the Bible, to cast our anxieties on him for he who cares for you. The Bible calls for us to pray, and if I'm honest, I know I'm not the only one. I have room to grow in this. Amen? We have room to grow in this. I have room to grow in my prayer life. It's frequency. It's intentionality. Am I praying for the lost? Am I making supplications for our brothers and sisters in the faith, especially those who are facing persecution? Am I praying for them? Am I praying for our pastors that they would lead and shepherd us well? Am I praying that more pastors will be raised up for the sake of ministry? Am I praying for lost family members and our friends? Am I praying for you? Are you praying for me? See, Paul writes this letter to a congregation. Though each Christian is a soldier at war, wise warriors do not fight alone. By mere numbers can the best soldier be overwhelmed and overran. But a group of soldiers, a group of warriors who hold each other up, shoulder to shoulder, whose shields are raised and swords at the ready, that's much more dangerous to an enemy, isn't it? So lean on me, friends. Let me lean on you. Let us lean on each other in this walk and in this war. Let us be in the fight together. Paul in 2 Thessalonians says this, and I think it's a very fitting way to end our call to war. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may, be, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, God, we need you, truly, Father, we need you. God, I pray uh, now for this body of believers that as a body, as a congregation of of your church, Father, that you would uh, imprint upon our hearts, God, the truths of these words, that you would encourage us, that we are in a war, but a war that has already been won, that has already been sealed in victory by Christ, And therefore, it's not our strength by which we fight, but it's in yours, God. You have given us the means. You have given us the defense. You have given us our weapon. Remind us, Father, of your love for us. God, and let us be driven to fight this war, not by the strength of our two hands, but on the faithfulness of one who sealed us for all eternity. God, I love you. I thank you. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray, amen.